Please join me as we read from 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless men and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So uh, the theme song to the TV sitcom, Cheers, begins like this. Sometimes you got to go where everybody knows your name, right? So for me and my siblings growing up, uh, we felt like we had a place to go where everybody knew our name, but not because we were frequent patrons of a uh, Boston bar, but because we were frequent patients at the emergency room and uh, with the doctor and the orthopedic surgeon and the dermatologist, et cetera. Like, honestly, uh, with all of our ailments and bumps and bruises, it felt like we visited the doctor at least once a month, sometimes once a week. Um, and if you visited the doctor as many times as I have, uh, you've probably heard them say, at least one of them say, the following key phrase, this will only hurt a little. Don't believe them. It's a trick. Uh, I'll never forget the first time that I learned not to trust a doctor when they say that. I was in fourth or fifth grade, um, and I had a little cut on my thumb that wouldn't heal, uh, in part because I was continually picking at it. Uh, but either way, after it didn't heal for a week or so, we decided that it was time to go and see a, a dermatologist. Uh, and so we went to the dermatologist, and after examining uh, my thumb for a minute, the doctor decided that the best thing to do would be to burn it until it stopped bleeding, so he would cauterize it. And that sounded terrifying to a fifth-grade Cameron. Uh, it doesn't sound much better to a 29-year-old Cameron. Uh, so the doctor comforted me, saying, uh, oh, don't worry, I'll give you a, a shot of anesthesia, and like that way you won't feel the burn. Silly me, I trusted him. Uh, I relaxed and prepared for a little pinprick, but suddenly it felt like my whole hand was on fire. I'd never felt anything like it before. Like, I expected to look down and to see him holding a blowtorch to my finger. I'd never felt anything like it before, and, and it wasn't that he had begun to cauterize my wound. It was just that silly little shot of anesthesia, but it was burning my entire hand, and I was so frustrated because I thought, Doc, I trusted you. You said this would only hurt a little, and it hurt a lot. So why mention this? Well, um, because I realize that uh, there's a sting and a burn to our passage this morning, and I want to recognize that in advance. Um, but first, I want to mention one of the reasons that I, I love today, Student Ministry Sunday, is because it allows us, the student ministry, to serve you, the church. And we're always looking for new opportunities to invest in your students with ownership and responsibility 
So actually, I'm really excited this year because we spent an entire Sunday morning doing an inductive study of this very passage. So side note, part of the reason I'm super excited this morning is because a lot of your students have influence in the message that I'm teaching today. Uh, now, some of them thought I should pay them for their involvement. Um, I said, no, my job is to make sure you know how to study the Bible, and if it benefits me, then that's awesome. Um, but, but students, like, honestly, if I can encourage you for a moment, um, I'm so proud of you and thankful for you, uh, for your leaders, for your parents as well, but especially you guys. You've been a blessing to me and to this church in a really challenging time. And I want to say thank you for, for loving each other, for, in, for investing in your community, for continuing to be a part of this ministry. Um, so I just want to say I'm super proud of you. But anyway, back to our passage. Uh, as we studied this passage together, we all realized that it's going to be really challenging because we're talking about the reality of suffering in the life of the Christian. And I, I know that for many of us, including my own family, this past year or so, have been an extraordinary struggle. Many of us have suffered physically, relationally, emotionally, financially. And, and honestly, I, I'm personally not really excited about being joyful, or like hearing a message about being joyful in suffering, much less preaching one. Um, but I want to encourage us to hang in there. Because remember, any hurt that a doctor inflicts isn't intended to harm us, but to help us. And similarly, I think that beneath the initial sting of this passage, there lies a well of extraordinary assurance. And I want to hear that today. But before we jump in, I just want to ask if you would pray with me for just a moment. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, God, would you be with me? May my words be glorifying to you and helpful to these friends. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin in verse 12. If you're following along, you can look there. He sa uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So already, Peter has packed a lot into this short section of text. So one thing that's helpful to, to break down a complicated block of text is to begin with the verbs. So this helps us follow the author's train of thought. And here we see that Peter gives us two verbs, two commands related to our attitude in times of suffering. So in verse 12, we see he says, do not be surprised. So Peter doesn't want us to be surprised by what he calls fiery ordeals. Or to say it another way, he wants us to expect suffering. So already, this passage is turning out to be a tough pill to swallow, especially because in our Western evangelical culture, we have sometimes tended to miscommunicate the benefits of faith in Christ. Now, to be clear, there's nothing better than following Jesus, okay? So the psalmist said, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever. Now, it doesn't get better than the fullness of joy and pleasures forever, but still, we need to recognize that there is indeed a cost to following Jesus. So in our day, and apparently in Peter's day as well, believers have falsely taken God's promises to, to comfort us and to protect us to mean that we won't endure suffering. And I don't know where that idea comes from, but it doesn't come from the Bible. So Jesus himself never concealed the reality of suffering. 
Actually, he spoke of it plainly and frequently. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And later, on the night that Jesus himself would take up his cross, he told his disciples in John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. So, to Jesus and to those who followed after him, this kind of suffering is normal. So we ought not be surprised when it comes. And instead, our next verb in verse 13, Peter says we ought to rejoice, right? So this idea of of rejoicing in hardship isn't uncommon in the Scriptures. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Also, James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So this concept isn't new. We've heard this before. But honestly, no matter how many times I read these verses, I find it hard to take them seriously. They actually, they remind me of a guy who went to my high school named Ben. Now, Ben was a football player, um, and he started out uh, by being a a little baby freshman of a football player, and in the period of just a couple of years, became a massive specimen of a man, which, good for him, but you did not want to be around him when he was working out, especially in the weight room. Uh, because he had this, like, locker room ritual that would get him pumped up to, to exercise. So he would begin by sitting next to his locker, listening to, like, heavy, medi, heavy, heavy metal or, like, thrash music, super loud in his earbuds, like, loud enough that it filled up the locker room. And, and he'd sit there quietly at first. But increasingly, he'd start to get amped up and angry. And as he started to get angry, he would start to pace around the locker room. And then he would begin punching walls and banging his head into a locker. I'm not kidding. And he, he, then he would walk out into the weight room at least once with blood dripping down his forehead and then proceed to lift like a tremendous amount of weights. And every time that he'd do a lift, he would scream, ah, like a banshee. I'm serious. It's true. So one time, another football player asked him, hey, Ben, what's with all the screaming and self-mutilation? Uh, and Ben replied, I just love the pain, baby. And... I believe Ben when he said that. I believe that Ben loved the pain. Ben was crazy. Uh, so is, is that what these passages are asking us to do? Is that what Peter is asking us to do? To love the pain and relish the hurt? Well, no. Peter's not saying that suffering itself is good or desirable, but the experience of pain will produce a good and desirable result. In other words, God intends to use our painful circumstances for his good purposes. So in this passage, Peter wants to give us a heavenly perspective on suffering. So he's going to offer believers three reasons to rejoice as we face hardships. Three reasons to remain faithful in the fire of suffering. And this morning, we're going to walk through these three points together. But first, we need to get more specific about the nature of the suffering being described here in chapter 4. The suffering that Peter is talking about is connected to our identity as believers in Jesus. So you can look and see. We see this in verse 13 where he says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, or in verse 14 where it says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, and also in verse 16 where it says, if anyone suffers as a Christian. So that last statement in verse 16 is actually really significant, especially Peter's use of the term Christian. 
Now, it might not seem unusual to us, but to Peter's audience, that term would have stirred up a lot of emotions. So surprisingly, the term Christian only appears two other places in the entire Bible. And both other times, it's used by antagonists and opponents of the faith. In other words, the term Christian was originally used to demean, undermine, and mock followers of Jesus. And Peter is using it intentionally to clarify the kind of suffering that he's talking about. So, men and women, the kind of suffering that we're talking about is persecution. Mistreatment because of our faith in Christ. So, our first point for this morning is this. In times of persecution, believers can rejoice because we are identified with Christ. And this is where the sting of Peter's words begin to get more personal because for some of us, perhaps perhaps many of us, this persecution in the name of Jesus, which Peter calls normal and expected, is actually abnormal. And this may be for a couple of reasons. One is the fact that we as believers live in an extraordinarily unusual period in church history. For the vast majority of our existence, the church has experienced political, social, and personal rejection. So our brothers and sisters of generations past did not enjoy the protections of religious liberty or the social benefits of faith. So perhaps one of the reasons that we don't experience harsh persecution as believers is because, at least for now, we're shielded from much of it. And yet I, th- I, th- I think we need to consider another possibility We need to ask ourselves, does the absence of persecution in my life point to an absence of Christ-likeness in my life? So there's an old Billy Graham quote that my mom and dad used to quote to me and my siblings as kids. They'd say, if you were arrested for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It still gets me today. And I'll speak for myself here. Often in my life, I've I've tended to allow either doubt or sinful desire to lead me to blend in with the world. And if you're like me, well, then we we really need to listen here to the encouragement of Peter because, listen, Peter was actually, he was writing to a group of churches not unlike our own. So in the first verse of of the letter, which we studied earlier this year, we see that Peter is speaking to a group of churches in the provinces of of Asia Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and the cities in these provinces were the definition of a pluralistic society, a mixture of peoples and ideas. And what bound them together was Roman rule. And now, the Romans didn't care much about what you believed, as long as you didn't stir up trouble and that you worshiped Caesar as Lord. The problem was Christians couldn't follow either of those rules. Firstly, they worshiped Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. And secondly, they stirred up trouble everywhere they went because when the gospel collides with human culture, there's always friction. And often that friction ignites a fire. And this is exactly why Peter is writing to warn believers. He recognizes that the opposition that these churches are facing is about to become persecution as the iron fist of Rome descends on them in the name of peace. And I think something very similar is happening in our day. 
And in the West, we're experiencing an extraordinary revolution in morality. Some things that we as believers in Jesus value most deeply are now not only considered old-fashioned, but flat-out wrong or even dangerous. So following Jesus in the past previously made us uncool in the eyes of the culture, but increasingly we're perceived as a threat. And it's, I think, this reason that many believers have become the target of a lot of hostility and anger. And men and women, boys and girls, perhaps this is the reason that some of you have been singled out and shamed in your faith in, in, your, in your homes, in, in, your, in your schools, in your places of work. And it's because of your commitment to Christ. And here's the thing. In those moments, Peter would call us to respond. But not out of fear not out of anger, and certainly not out of outrage, but with rejoicing. Why? Because as he says, in persecution, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, in the New Testament, to share in the sufferings of Christ, it's a really loaded term. It doesn't just mean that we suffer in the same manner as Christ. It means we suffer for the same mission. See, it was the way that Christ suffered that drew so many people to him. So just think of, of the Roman centurion who saw him on the cross or the thief who died next to him. As far as we know, neither of them heard a word of Jesus' teaching. What did they know about him? How he suffered. How he died. How he endured mockery without making a response. How he died forgiving the very people putting him to death. And friends, likewise, when we suffer in the name of Jesus, we become a picture of his self-sacrificing love and grace. So I, it's unlikely that any person that we meet will ever see Jesus face to face on this side of eternity. But if we suffer well in his name, they get to see his reflection in us. That's what Peter is saying here. It's our Christian identity that leads to persecution. But it's in times of persecution that we're most closely identified with Christ. So in this way, our suffering may lead to the salvation of others. And we get to be a part of the new thing that God is doing in the world. And that's why it says in verse 13, at the revelation of his, Jesus' glory, we may rejoice with exaltation. So that's point number one. The next two won't take us long, I promise. Point number two, in times of persecution, believers can rejoice because we are invested with the Holy Spirit. So in verses 14 through 16, Peter says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not ashamed but it's to glorify God in this name. So previously, Peter encouraged believers with a future hope. Like when we suffer, we get to participate in Christ's work, and as we do so, we can rejoice casting our minds forward to that glorious moment when he comes back to fully and finally make all things right. And yet, we don't have to wait till the future to see that there is purpose in our pain. We have full assurance right now that we're blessed by God. And how do we know that? Because we possess the down payment that points to that future hope. 
We don't have to wait until we see Jesus face to face to know that he's with us. He's with us right now because the Holy Spirit is in us. So when Jesus began his ministry on earth, he became a threat to the people in power in his day. So to the self-righteous and the religious, he was too committed to grace and radical for forgiveness. And to the worldly and the secular, he was too committed to truth and holiness. And for that reason, both the Jews and the Romans tried to mock and marginalize him. And when that didn't work, they murdered him. So similarly, to be persecuted or reviled for Christ is evidence that you belong to him. And it's evidence that he's doing something glorious in your life. That's God's own spirit radiating through you. So be encouraged. He's with you through the fire. That is, unless you're suffering because you deserve it. Verse 15, Peter says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So I should say at first that this list clearly isn't exhaustive. It's, it's representative. You'll notice that it begins with a serious offense, murder, and, a less, and it ends with a less serious, though still sinful, offense, meddling. So this is a short list that's intended to stand for a much longer list. And he's looking at both ends of the spectrum, and he's saying, look, whether it's murder or meddling, don't you dare suggest that Jesus had anything to do with that. So I, a great tragedy of the cultural moment that we're living through, church, is that many in our time have taken the name of Jesus and then proceeded to engage in murder violence, slander, abuse, corruption, name-calling, and the list goes on. And then when the right consequences for those things come, they'll turn around and say, I'm only being persecuted because I'm a Christian. And to that, Peter is saying, no. If you're getting picked on for one of those reasons, that's not called persecution. That's called getting what you deserve. Guys, these things are not evidence that God's spirit is radiating through. Quite frankly, they might be evidence that you're a jerk. So there is no excuse or justification for sinful behavior. It doesn't matter how severe the persecution, we don't respond to evil with evil. Now, I'm not saying that we don't stand for what is right and we don't fight against evil. But may I remind you that Jesus fought evil by allowing evil to defeat him. He overcame the world by allowing the world to overcome him. He destroyed death by allowing death to destroy him. And then he didn't stay dead. And Christian, if this is our example, then how should we respond in times of persecution? Let's continue, verses 17 through 18 says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with great difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So students, uh, those of you who were pre present when we studied this together, I think you might remember that we spent a lot of time struggling over this section. We kind of ran out of time before we nailed it down, and I think I remember telling you, you're going to have to wait until you hear me preach to see if we were going in the right direction. Well, here you go. Um, part of the reason that this section was so confusing to us as we studied it is because Peter, notice, suddenly shifts from talking about persecution to talking about what? Judgment. 
And that makes me wonder, like, are those two the same thing? Is God somehow using persecution to punish Christians? Like, what is going on here, Peter? And in order to understand what's going on, we need to look closely at some of his words because that will begin to unlock the mystery. So, especially in verse 17, Peter used this really key phrase. He said, the household of God. Now, in the minds of Peter's audience, this would have brought to mind an important passage in Malachi chapter 9 where God promised to cleanse the hearts of his people beginning in the temple, like beginning in the assembly. And so the great struggle of God's people under that old covenant was their awareness of their sin before a holy God. That weighed heavily on them. And yet in Malachi chapter 9, God promised something great. He said, Malachi said, when God appears in his temple, he will cleanse his people of impurities. So now the pieces of the puzzle are starting to fit together because Peter has earlier hinted at a desire in God to refine his people. If you look back in verse 12, you'll see that he spoke of a fiery ordeal. Now that term refers to the purification of precious metals to make them shine with their full potential. So as we're looking at this, we realize that God has fulfilled that promise in Malachi chapter 9 in the person of Jesus. But the question then is how does Jesus purify and refine us? Well, Jesus paid our debt to sin. So before God, we are legally called righteous. That's because Jesus took our sin on himself and he gave us his righteousness. But the problem is that we still continue to sin and to struggle. So the question then becomes, how does Jesus deal with our ongoing sin struggles? And church, we need to understand that the answer is through suffering. It's through persecution. So when we receive salvation, two things happen. Our position before God changes, we are no longer sinful, but we're declared righteous. And also our proximity to Jesus changes. So when we trust him, we begin to look more like him. And the more that we look like him, the more the world rejects and persecutes us. And this is what Peter means by judgment, by the way. It's not about punishment. It's about purification. By making us look more like Christ, God brings us into confrontation with the world. And when the world responds with hate and persecution, we shine with brilliance, like gold or silver, just as Jesus did when he was persecuted. And, and, and if you don't like the illustration of refinement through fire, I can give you a different one. So, Every now and then when I scroll through Instagram and Facebook, I see those videos of people who take random objects and put them under a hydraulic press. Have any of you seen these before? I, I can't not watch them. I always have to stop and watch. Why? Because I want to see if the object stands up to the pressure of that, the massive pressure of that hydraulic press. Uh, and, and that's what makes them fun to watch, right? So uh, usually the, the, the object doesn't stand up to that massive force. It explodes spectacularly. But sometimes it does stand up to that force. When it does stand up to the force, when it doesn't, you know, crush and explode, it's not as fun to watch, but it does show us something very important about the object or material being tested. So the crazy thing about hydraulic presses, they weren't invented for us to enjoy watching videos on Instagram and Facebook, right? So they were invented so scientists and engineers could test materials under load. And so if a material would break under pressure, that would mean it failed the test. But if they don't break, they pass. Or to say that another way, they're approved. 
So similarly, when God judges believers, it's not about punishment. He's putting us under pressure to prove our worth. And and that's our final point. In times of persecution, we can rejoice as we're invited to prove our worth. So to the Christian, suffering is a paradoxical gift. It, It refines us by resetting our priorities. When we lose power, influence, and relevance because of our commitment to Jesus, Jesus becomes the only person we can trust. And when we lean into him, when he's the only person that we can turn to, we find that he is worthy of our trust. So when our faith is put in crisis, when it's tested, it becomes more genuine. Now, to the Christian, Suffering is also a necessary outworking of salvation. So in, in verse 18, we saw Peter quote the Septuagint in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. He said, if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man or the sinner? Now, he's not saying that we need to suffer in order to be saved. Instead, he's saying that because we're saved, we will suffer. But the question becomes, why? So why is suffering necessary, Peter? Why is that a necessary outworking of our salvation? Well, because God is committed to recreating and renewing the world. He refuses to abandon this creation to sin and brokenness. But in order to participate in what he's doing, friends, we need to be purified. Part of God's work of salvation in our lives is what is called sanctification. That's the process where God makes us look more like Jesus and less like the world. And for for some reason, when we talk about the process of sanctification, we tend to talk about it like it's magical, as though God sprinkles some Jesus dust on us, and then we suddenly become more like him. But Peter's saying, no, that's not true. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, isn't a magical process. It's a manual process. In other words, God uses real experiences of pain and persecution to make us a part of the new thing that he's doing in the world. On the other hand, those who are unwilling to be saved by Jesus, to submit to him and to suffer with him, they're not able to enter that new kingdom. Instead, they will face the wrath of God's judgment. Now, I want to close this morning where I began, and that's by recognizing the sting of this passage. Suffering persecution is not only normal for the Christian, it's necessary. And it's coming for us too, church. And I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, I really want to believe that God's highest priority is to help me get where I want to go and to bless me with prosperity and health and wealth along the way. But the letter of Peter, and the rest of the scriptures for that matter, reveal that God has an entirely different set of priorities. And listen, not just different, but better. You see, our God is a God who is gathering together a people refined by persecution, redeemed by the sacrifice of his son, and called into a grand mission to push back the darkness. And listen, I promise you, whatever part you have to play in that story, it's better than your plans. Even if and when it includes persecution. So my plea to you, all of us this morning, students, parents, leaders, whoever's in this room, don't get caught up writing your own little story. Instead, come and be a part of the better story that God is writing in the world. 
And yes, it will involve suffering. Yes, it does involve persecution. But let me ask you, which is better, enduring suffering with Christ now, which Paul calls light and momentary, or being apart from him in eternity? So, so Peter ends this whole thing by saying, therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, the truth is that not a single person in the world escapes suffering. That's part of the curse of living in a fallen world. But as believers, may our suffering be according to the will of God. Nothing is more worthy than to suffer with the Savior who made us new and who's making all things new. So to endure persecution well is a challenge. The circumstances are often painful, lonely, and humiliating. And the good news of the gospel is that my circumstances don't determine God's love or care for me. His commitment to me extends beyond my circumstances. And here's the crazy thing. If you trust him, God will use your pain in his great plan to rid the world of pain just as he did in Jesus. And I love that Peter ends this way. So like for a while, as a, as a class, we wondered, why did Peter choose to use the title creator here? That's kind of rare in the scriptures, and it seems out of place here. But I, I think I understand why now. For b- believers who were about to face persecution, who were about to be dragged into public and ridiculed, who were about to be told, your beliefs are backwards. You're Jesus is just an imaginary friend. You and your Christ are canceled. Like, what they needed to hear most is to be reminded in that moment that we serve a God who made this place. He holds all of the power in his hands, and we can trust that if we're obedient to him, we are on the right side of history. And and we need not be ashamed, as Peter said. We can be confident that even if the world condemns us, One day we're going to be vindicated when he comes again, when Jesus comes again. So church, we can can trust God with our pain. More than that, we can rejoice in our pain knowing that he's working through us, he's with us, and he's refining us. So Christian, don't give up. Don't give in. Keep going. And as Peter said, keep doing what is right. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you again uh, for this opportunity to, to be in your presence this morning, to serve you, to love you. And Lord, I do thank you for uh, the students that are here in this room and, and those who weren't able to be here. Um, and God, we just want to, we thank you for the way that you have promised to build your church that you use uh, different types of people, pastors, leaders, parents, to, to pour into young people and to be a part of what you're doing in their lives. And, and God, as, as their leaders, we, we thank you for that opportunity. And, and speaking of leaders, God, I thank you for the many leaders who have, you've blessed this ministry with. God, we thank you for their influence and their input. And God, especially for parents, what a challenge it is to, 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 to honor you in these days by, by raising children that love you and trust you and want to follow you with their lives. I pray that you would bless the parents in this place. God, as we, as we go from this place, we ask that you, that you would be near us. God, that you would help us endure persecution well. God, that we would be like a shining light for you. You're so good to us, God. 
And in this, in this moment, we also want to, to think of, of the world that we're in, and we especially lift up um, the hurt and the pain and the brokenness that's happening on the other side of the world. God, we pray uh, over, the, over the struggle and the conflict in Israel and, and in Gaza. And Father, we pray that, that you would act to preserve life, that you would bring peace, you, the Prince of Peace, God, that you would bring peace to that place. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.